Welcome to the Radical Truth Podcast. I am your host, Glenn Meldrum, and this podcast is brought to you by In His Presence Ministries. Visit us on the web at www.ihpministry.com. The opening of chapter 3 of the book of Acts sets the stage for the events that follows, and this is what we finished examining in our last lesson. Peter and John were entering the gate beautiful, that was the most spectacular of the gates leading into the temple in Jerusalem, and they met a man that was born lame, who was begging at the gate. His deformity was severe enough that he couldn't walk, so he had to be carried every day by family and friends to the gate beautiful. Begging was how he earned his food and lodging, since he didn't have the ability to perform any sort of menial labor that could support him. He probably picked the gate beautiful to beg at because it would have been the most lucrative since it was one of the main entrances into the temple precincts. As Peter and John was getting ready to walk by the man, he asked them for alms. The apostles turned toward the man, and Peter said, Look on us. And the man did, thinking that he was about to receive some money from them. The man wasn't seeking to be healed, nor was there any outward expression that he had the faith to be healed. He was over 40 years old and had long ago resigned himself to his beggarly situation. This is where we left off in our last lesson. Now let's learn what happens next. In verse 6 we are told that Peter said to the man, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. What we see here is what Peter and John learned from Jesus and were following his example. There's one major difference that needs to be mentioned, though. Jesus performed miracles through the inherent power he possessed as God Almighty, and this is why he never asked the Father to perform a miracle. We don't have such power, for that power belongs to God alone. But he does give authority to his followers to perform miracles in his name, which reveals that the miracle is done by Jesus through those who believe. If we want to see miracles happen, then we must have faith, and to some the Lord gives the gift to heal. The gift of healing is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and is one of the nine spiritual gifts the Lord gives to His church for the common good of the people. Most of these gifts are given for the edification of the church while others help lead people to salvation. We find this in verses 8 through 10. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. These nine gifts are broken down into three categories with three gifts in each category. The first category consists of the gifts of wisdom that include the gift of wisdom, the word of knowledge, and discerning of spirits. The second category is the prophetic gifts, which are prophecy, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. In this case, the gift of tongues are prophetic and aren't the same as the tongues that are given as evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is given to any believer that receives by faith this wonderful gift. The final category is the power gifts that include faith, miracles, and gifts of healing. The gift of faith is a special endowment of faith to believe beyond our natural ability for the supernatural power of God to perform miracles and healings. It's interesting that the gifts of healing is plural, not singular, and this reveals why God uses some people for healing specific illnesses or diseases. 
I believe that the apostles were given the power gifts so that the Lord would be glorified through miracles and healings. People aren't directly saved because of miracles, but miracles open people up to the message of the gospel so that they can be saved. We see in the account of the lame man that Peter and John were operating through the gifts of faith and healing. The two go hand in hand. Now this doesn't mean that the Lord won't heal through people that aren't given the supernatural gifts of faith and healing, because He will and still does. It just means that they aren't given the gifts of healing to do so as a ministry. One of the things that we see in the account of the lame man being healed is the emphasis that the apostles put upon the name of Jesus. This is right and understandable, given all that they had seen, heard, and experienced with Jesus. This isn't a denial of the Trinity. They were merely focusing upon the Savior and what He was doing through the Holy Spirit in their lives. Peter made a couple of very powerful points that I want to address, and they come from his statement, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. First off, Peter and John didn't have any money to give the man. They were financially poor, but rich in Christ. I despise the prosperity gospel that's another gospel than the one Jesus gave us. The goal of the true faith isn't wealth. It never has been, and it never will be. Those who get rich off the gospel are abusing the gospel for their own selfish gain, and they will answer to God for the slander that they have given to the gospel and for abusing people out of their greed and selfishness. Such deceivers are using the gospel as a means to get rich, which is strictly forbidden by God. They pervert the scriptures to support their greed and selfishness that they have practiced in the name of God, and they will face God on their judgment day. Nobody can abuse God's people and be exempt from answering to God for their abuse. It may seem like these greedy preachers are getting away with their deception, but there's a day of reckoning they will face that will deal with the wickedness they practice and even promoted. Peter and John were obviously not taken up with a greedy religion because Jesus never promoted a greedy religion. Such a perverted religion is the creation of wicked people, not God. The second point that comes out of this sentence, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you, is that Peter and John were rich in Christ, and it was from that spiritual wealth that they could help the man. We can only give what we possess. Let me give you a silly analogy to illustrate this point. Just imagine that I said I would give each listener to this podcast a check for $1,000. Now remember, this is just an illustration. You would be very happy when you received the check in the mail. But the moment you tried to cash it, you would grow very angry at me because I don't have the funds to make the checks good. No matter how sincere I might be, I can't give what I don't possess. Peter and John had been given by the Savior the gifts of faith and healing, and since it was our Lord's will to heal this man, they could say, What I have I give you. This stands true in all of life. If you are in spiritual poverty, then you can only give to people out of your bankrupt condition. If a husband and wife are filled with selfishness, bitterness, and anger, then that's all they can give to each other, and this is why marriages end up in divorce. They can only give to their spouse the corruption that's inside of them, and we are taught in the Word that the works of the flesh bring death. When a husband and wife are living according to the sinful nature, all they can give each other is death spiritual death, and relational death. For there to be healing in a marriage, there must first be transformation of the individuals going from lives defined by selfishness and sin to that of selfless love and righteousness. 
Until this spiritual revolution happens in the husband and wife, they will continue to give spiritual death to each other and destroy their marriage and their children. This never has to be, but it happens because of the choice of the individuals. People don't have to destroy their marriage and children. Yet this happens all the time because they don't want to change. They don't want Jesus to revolutionize their life. This is totally crazy. Jesus is waiting for people to humble themselves before him and repent of their sin and wicked nature so that he can heal them and their marriage. Yet they refuse to do so, for they love their sin and selfishness more than anything or anyone, including their spouse and children. If we want the spiritual wealth of heaven to give others, then we must be willing to go where that wealth is obtained, which is at the feet of Jesus. Just as it costs a person who is greedy of financial gain to secure the wealth that he or she seeks after, so it will cost people to become rich in Christ. The cost to gain Christ and the spiritual wealth he offers is why so many people don't seek after him and why they continue to live in spiritual poverty. They want an easy fix to life problems and don't want to radically change or pay a high price to secure the Lord's favor. This has nothing to do with salvation by works, for this is all about passionately seeking after the Lord so that we can gain Christ and His life. Is such a life costly? Absolutely. Is it worth it? Yes, it is. I guarantee that a million years from now, you would be thoroughly happy with the decision you made to love God supremely and to love others selflessly. The eternal rewards are spectacular, but so are the rewards the Lord gives in this life to those who prove they love Him with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength by how they live and love others. Peter and John had the wealth of heaven to offer this man who was lame from birth. The gift is seen in his healing, while the greatest benefit came through his salvation and the eternal life he gained as a result. Another point we see in verse 6 is the authority that Jesus gave Peter and John. Let me read the verse so that you can hear it for yourself. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. The God-given authority is seen in the simple word, walk. This was a command, not a suggestion. To give such a command without God-given authority is sure to produce nothing. If we don't have God's authority, then we can't operate through His authority. A private in the army may claim that he has the same authority as a general, but the moment he begins to give orders to the soldiers, it will become obvious that he doesn't have the authority he claims to have. When a person has authority, it's obvious for people to see. When a general gives orders to the soldiers under his command, they listen and obey. But if the private were to give the same orders, nobody would listen or obey because he doesn't have the authority to do it. People are given God's authority according to his will and purpose, and involved in this is the character of the individual. The quality of our character is an integral part of God giving to a limited degree and for special purposes his authority to accomplish his will. We see that the Lord gave Peter and John authority for divine healing that was limited according to God's will. We see an interesting expression of this in Acts chapter 5, verse 15, where the people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. It's implied in this verse that they were healed as a result of his shadow. 
Any question of this should be settled in the very next verse that declares crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. We see from this the authority Jesus gave the apostles, where they were doing miracles similar to what Jesus did. And we are told in the Gospels about the times that he healed everyone in the multitude. Now we must recognize that with God-given authority, there is the real potential for pride and abuse. There's an old saying that maintains that few survive the anointing. If those who are given God's authority or anointing don't live the crucified life, then the unconquered areas of their life might produce their ruin. The problem is never with God's anointing or authority, but with the corruption of our characters that abuse His gifts and authority. Now let's look at verses 7 and 8 and see the evidence that the Lord gave Peter and John His authority to perform miraculous healings. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and angles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Peter spoke an authoritative word to the man, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Faith and action caused Peter to reach out a hand to the lame man to help him up, and this is when the man was healed. Not only was Peter and John believing, but the man himself began to believe when Peter reached out his hand to him. If Peter would have merely spoke those words of faith without the expression of faith by reaching out to the man, then I believe the man wouldn't have been healed. Faith is an action word that must not only be spoken in faith, but must be acted upon in a necessary way. In this account, it was Peter reaching out a hand to help the lame man up, and the lame beggar reaching out to grab Peter's hand. Verse 7 tells us that when Peter helped the man up, that his feet and ankles became strong, or were healed. This man was crippled from birth and was over 40 years old, so there surely wasn't any of the muscle that would allow him to walk through his own strength. Not only did the Lord heal the man's deformity, but he strengthened the bone and muscle to such an extent that it was as if he had never been lame. We also see the faith of the lame man, where we are told that as Peter began to pull him up, he himself jumped up, for he knew that he was healed. Now let's take this a step further. The man who had never walked was not only totally physically healed, but he immediately could use his feet and legs as if he had always been walking. This means that through the supernatural power of God, he instantly learned how to walk and leap while keeping his balance. This teaches us that the miracle not only healed the man physically, but touched the man's mind to give him the ability to walk and leap as if he had been doing it all of his life. Peter and John were heading into the temple when this miracle took place, so the man went with them, and this may have been the first time he had ever been allowed to enter into the temple since he was deformed. Men of the tribe of Levi and of the priestly line of Aaron who were deformed weren't allowed to serve in the temple. Some have suggested that the deformed man may have not ever been allowed in the temple or its courts because his deformity made him unclean. Now that the man was made whole, he went into the temple jumping, leaping, and praising God, and he had some really good reasons to do so. To have a man jumping, leaping, and praising God with joyful exuberance must have caused quite a stir in the temple. The temple was normally a somber place that was meant to fill people with awe for God. For it to be suddenly filled with such enthusiasm would have grabbed the attention of everyone that was in sight or sound of the event. 
The man would have been acting more like a child, for this was all new to him, and the awe of the miracle that worked on him would have been very contagious. In verses 9 and 10, we are told, When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The response of the people was only reasonable, at least to begin with. They were filled with wonder and amazement over what had happened to the beggar. He had been begging at the gate for so long that people knew him, and now that he was walking, they didn't question if it was the same man, but were wondering how this miracle happened. In verse 11, we are told what happened next. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. I imagine that the beggar was holding on to Peter and John out of concern over all the attention that was being focused upon him, something he had never sought for. The beggar was immediately thrust into the limelight because of the miracle that God had performed for him. The questions must have been coming at him fast and furious, as well as at Peter and John, some friendly and some not. The point that they were in Solomon's colonnade helps to whittle down where the gate beautiful was located, which was on the eastern side of the temple. Solomon's colonnade of this day wasn't part of the original temple King Solomon built, since that was totally destroyed by the Babylonians. Solomon's colonnade of Herod's temple was probably built in the same place as the original one and was called by the same name. Solomon's colonnade is said to have been a very large area that could hold large crowds of people because it contained both the court of the Jews and the court of the Gentiles. In spite of Peter's natural stubbornness and impetuous nature, he learned much from the Savior, and now that he was full of the Holy Spirit, he became sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. The perfect situation had fallen into his lap, and he responded to the situation in a right way. He had the discernment to see the opportunity and the courage to rise to the occasion. So Peter began to preach. Verse 12 lays out the opening of his second sermon that's recorded in the book of Acts. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The first thing Peter did is extremely important. He gave glory to God and didn't take any of it himself. Here's a dangerous trap. While giving glory to God, people take credit for what the Lord did through them. In this way, people rob God of the glory that's solely due to Him, and He will not share His glory with anyone. When people take credit for some of the miracles Jesus does, then we rob God of His glory. This is exceedingly easy to do when testifying about something the Lord has done. We somehow take credit for what the Lord did and make it appear as if we are special or made it happen through our own ability. Yes, God uses people that will believe His promises and step out in faith. Yet it was the Lord that used the person, and it was God that brought the person to the point of being usable. Otherwise, the person would have still been in the practice of sin. Paul stated it very well in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? What we have that's good came through divine grace, whether gifts or talents or things spiritual or material. What's still corrupt is of our own making, and this should cause us shame. 
there's no way we can blame anyone for our sin and corruption, since it's of our own making and choice. If we want God to use us, then we need to give credit to Him for all that He's done and not rob Him of the glory that belongs to Him alone. Peter asked the people a question. Why does this surprise you, that God should heal a lame man? Understand that these were devout Jews that were in the temple for a time of prayer during the evening sacrifice, and they would have known the stories of old about the miracles the Lord had done for the patriarchs of Israel. Not just that. Just a short while ago, Jesus of Nazareth was performing all kinds of miracles among the people, so there was nothing new about miracles taking place in Israel. But Jesus was crucified, and after that they weren't seeing the miracles like they did through Jesus. Now a new miracle took place that was spectacular, and it happened at the entrance to the temple, yet the people were still surprised. To apply this to the true faith, it's tragic when Christians stop expecting God to perform miracles, when it's normal for the church to not see them, and if something supernatural happens, then it's considered suspect. We should always be in awe when the Lord performs miracles, yet it shouldn't be a shock since they should be the normal life of a believing church. It's time we return to the faith as defined by Jesus, where the miraculous is normal and the lack of miracles is clear evidence of unbelief. Jesus didn't perform many miracles in Nazareth, where he was brought up, because they refused to believe. Our unbelief is no different and will get us the same results. Peter made an important point with this probing question. Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The Lord used Peter and John to perform this miracle, and he still uses godly men and women today. If we want God to do the miraculous through us, then we must be people whom the Lord can use. Peter was right in saying that the miracle had nothing to do with them, but solely was the work of God. The power that produced the miracle and the godliness the two apostles walked in came through Christ alone and not through themselves. Peter doesn't waste any time getting into the crux of the matter in this sermon and declared in verses 13 and 14, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murder to be released to you. Anyone who says that I'm a tough preacher hasn't heard Peter or James preach. Notice that Peter didn't open up with a joke or cute antidote, and he didn't begin with some frivolous small talk, but immediately jumped right into the message. He also wasn't out to spare the people's feelings or to make them feel good about themselves. He told them the truth in pure and simple terms and exposed the people's guilt before God. This was a different crowd from those who attended Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost. A lot of people from the crowd that was on the day of Pentecost had come from all over the Roman Empire to celebrate that feast, but this time those in the temple were mostly from Israel and Jerusalem. Within that crowd, there may have been men who cried crucify him before Pilate and was at the crucifixion mocking Jesus. Most of those in that crowd knew of those events and probably agreed with what the religious elite did in having Jesus crucified. Now Peter was exposing the horrendous evil they had perpetrated and condoned. These religious people were rushing to hell and the most loving thing Peter could do was to tell them the truth and expose their spiritual condition and guilt before God. 
To have kept the truth from them by preaching a positive message would have only helped secure for them a place in hell. This was the most loving message those men ever heard, and they needed to take heed to the word of the Lord that was coming through that apostolic prophet. Now, let's look at some of the components of this fiery sermon. First off, Peter appealed to the Jewishness of the people by saying, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. This brought the needed continuity between what the Lord did in the past to what he did through Jesus on to what he was doing at that very moment by healing the lame beggar. All that was taken place was done by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. He was saying that it was your God who glorified his servant Jesus. Though this statement doesn't reveal the divinity of Jesus, as the sermon progresses, Peter will make this fact known, which will further expose the guilt of the people. Peter then makes the strong argument that the God who glorified Jesus, you handed over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. Okay, the sermon is getting very serious at this point. Peter was demonstrating that they were fighting against the God they claimed to serve by using Pilate, the Roman governor over Israel, to have Jesus, a Jew, crucified. Their guilt is exposed by having a fellow Jew crucified, but their guilt is even worse. They disowned their Messiah and wanted him crucified. Their culpability gets worse showing that Pilate, who was a Gentile, strove to release Jesus while the Jews did everything they could to have him crucified. This is basically saying that the wicked Roman ruler was more righteous and compassionate than the religious Jews. These are fighting words, but since Peter was preaching under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, his words pierced the heart of those wicked men. The apostle goes on to prove their guilt is all the worse by stating that they disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murder be released. The first contrast Peter made was between the Gentile ruler and the religious Jews and declared that Pilate was the more righteous of the two. Now he's making another contrast by declaring that they preferred a known murderer over the holy and righteous one whom they disowned, denounced, and rejected. This further exposed their love of evil over that of righteousness and demonstrates how deceived they actually were. The title Peter gave Jesus is clearly a reference to Messiah that comes out of Psalm 16, verse 10. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Through this, Peter made the contrast even greater. They preferred a murderer over their promised Messiah. Dear listener, have you done the same thing in your own way? Have you preferred some sin, expression of evil, or a person or thing over the salvation that comes through Jesus, the only Savior and Messiah? Have you loved pleasure and ease above God, who became human to redeem you from your sin? There's forgiveness only through repenting to Jesus and turning from your sin. Today is the day of your salvation. Don't let Jesus pass you by. Thank you for listening to The Radical Truth with your host, Glenn Meldrum. We at In His Presence Ministries pray that this weekly podcast will be a blessing to you. Please tell others about it and subscribe yourself to this free podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at www.ihpministry.com. 
See you again next time, and may God richly bless you as you seek Him in spirit and in truth. Thirst no more, so come wash in the river, come drink your fill.